When you have heard a story uh, time and time again, over and over, it is entirely possible, like a book you read, a song you've heard, a movie that's playing, um, sometimes it's hard to listen, right? You have a hard time hearing now because you heard it before. I, I know what's coming. And you, you, maybe you've been given explanations and they've been repeated, so you, you know what's about to be said. And we have heard this, the same thing time and time again, and you just figure, well, it must be true because I heard it. But today I want to ask you again, is it true? Is that all? And I would challenge you to listen to what you are hearing today. What are you taking in today? So I want to look at another mixed message to be about removing some confusion again. And today we're going to look at the prodigal. Now, I think most of you, many of you at least, have heard that word. But do you know what the word means? I mean, I heard it so many times, I just figured that I knew. I always heard it in a context. What does the prodigal mean? Right? Good, good question. But it's another one that I never asked myself. I didn't ask it for years. I thought I, know, I knew what it was. I said, it's the guy who went away and came back, right? Like the returning son. The prodigal son means to come home. Did you think that? I mean, that's just the way it worked for me in my head. No one wants to admit it. I understand. Uh, but prodigal is all about spending money or resources freely and recklessly. That's what the word means, being wastefully extravagant. And boom, right there, it, it was kind of life-changing. I had never heard it in that way before. And so I wonder, does that change the way that you hear the story for you? D does that by itself make you rethink the story that you've heard so many times? The son who wastes what he has been given. So take a second, think about the implications of what it is, the wasting what he has been given. Maybe it redefines the story. Luke chapter 15 is where we find the story. It's a chapter filled with the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. Parables, uh, stories designed to teach, not to be overly picked apart in every detail, okay? They are illustrations, and they are quite often sneaky teaching. You didn't see it coming. Jesus, Jesus loved to teach with parables. And Luke 15 has three stories in it about lost things and searching for those things and finding those things. And so I want to hit the head scratcher kind of right off the top. So watch for the mixed message here. Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 11. We're going to hit Luke a lot today. So if you want to turn there, you can. Uh, Jesus continued. He's talking to Pharisees. There was a man who had two sons. Right there, for many of you go, oh, I know where this is going. I know that story. There was a man who had two sons. I can see it. I know down the path. I know what's coming up. I know this story. It's familiar to me. Twelve. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And the summary for, for that right there, Dad, I wish that you were dead. I'm done with you, but I want your stuff because I want your stuff to be my stuff. I want, I want to have what you have. I deserve it. After all, I was born. That's what I did to deserve it. And so anyone that, that Jesus is talking to, especially because we know there's a group of Pharisees that are listening in, 
They all hear this, and they would turn to each other at that point. You know a little bit of the, the, the hand squeeze? Oh, that was my boy. I'd give him something. So I'll give you your inheritance right now. Right? That, that would not have been tolerated. And they're just going, oh, this is a story about a bad boy. Right? That's the way they're going to see this. The father divided his property between them. He did it. He gave it to him. Verse 13, so not long after that, not long after he got this money, the younger son got together all that he had, packed his backpack, put his phone in it and a charger, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. 14, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. 15, so he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Israelite, Jewish boy, good Jewish boy, that's the implication, has sunk so low that he needs to feed an unclean animal. Jews don't have anything to do with pigs. Don't even have them in the town. It's not like you just don't order it on the menu. You don't go into the restaurant. It is not something that they deal with. And so this is the lowest place. That's the idea that we're supposed to take from here. Verse 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death with the pigs. 18, I got it. I'll set out and I'll go back to my father. And I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Just, just make me like one of your hired servants. 20, so he got up and he went to his father but, in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, but has got to be one of my favorite words. But is almost always when the story changes. We, we did a series uh, a number of years ago called Big Butts of the Bible. And the, the butt is a place that you want to pay attention. You want, you want to take a look at that butt. You want to see that butt because that butt tells a story. Things were like this but, and here's another but for you, a big but, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Now how could a man who was working on his farm see anybody who was a long way off? You would have to look. You, you would have to focus. You would have to be looking where you were pretty sure he was coming from, waiting, anticipating him, while he was still a long way off. His father saw him. And unlike the crowd that was around Jesus in the telling of the story, unlike the feelings that they would have had about the clenched fist and given the inheritance, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. In some way, figuring out what had happened. 
He ran to his son. Jewish men don't run. It's, it's inconvenient. It's uncomfortable. You've got to do something with the robe. You've got you've to pull it up. You have to expose your legs, which you're not supposed to do. It's undignified. You have the power. You have the authority. You have the resources. He comes to you. The father ran to his son. He threw his arms around him. Kissed him. No time for the son to say anything. I'm in with the hug. All in. 21. The son, I sort of picture, kind of pushes him back a little bit. He said, no, i got to do this right. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And for many of us, that's the key point of the story, right? That was the highlighted point. That's the point that we're supposed to see. That's what we think the story's about. 22, but the father said to his servants, doesn't even answer his son, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Give him his authority back. He's my son. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. 23, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast. We're going to celebrate. 24, for a son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they all began to celebrate. 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. 26, so he called to one of the servants and asked him what was going on. 27, your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he, was, he, he has him back safe and sound. 28, the older brother became angry, refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. 29, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a goat, a young goat, so I could celebrate with my friends. 30, but when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. 31, my son. The father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. 32. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So I ask you, who is the prodigal son? How, you have heard, how have you heard this story in your past? Do you remember from Sunday school? Do you remember sermons about it? What is lost in this story? A son? Many people don't leave churches because of the theology the leadership holds, but because of the way the leadership holds that theology. How we believe is just as important as what 
we believe, and in many ways, how we believe reveals what we believe. So we hear stories, right? And we just take them in. You hear it enough times, in our version of the story, it's just loaded with things that we have heard and not just things that we have read. What if I told you that you've picked up parts of this story over time that are not in the actual story? Would you believe me? Let's check, okay? Does this sound right to you? The prodigal son never spent his inheritance on sex, drugs, or rock and roll. No prostitutes. Jesus Pardon? I got a believer. Jesus never says that. He says asatos. That's the word. And it means wastefully or in a hopeless state. So why do we think that? Because I'm guessing you've all heard the sex, drugs, rock and roll, prostitutes kind of version of that story. Where does that idea come from? Well, it's in the Bible, right? It's in the Bible. The Bible says it, right? It's right there in black and white. First, the Bible doesn't ever say anything, all right? That's not the way it works. But this individual author, inspired by God, in this case, Luke, he wrote out a story that Jesus was telling. So Jesus says the words, but they are not his words. Words. He puts these words in the mouth of one of the key characters. But it really matters who you are quoting when you are quoting. And the translators, they insert, the, in the word choice that they put in, they insert many times the older brother's accusation. They follow along with the angry thoughts of the older brother. Perhaps the real lost son. Word, kind of word by word translation, Luke 15, 13. The younger son went away in a country distant, and there he wasted the estate of him living asatos. Translated variously to different translations as riotous living, wild living, reckless living, loose living, foolish living, reckless and immoral living. He wasted everything he had. He scattered his substance living riotously, living lecherously, dissolute living, lacking restraint. And there's footnotes that quite often come up that say wasteful. But there's no specifics. There's no details. That is until we get to Luke 15, 30. And then we get the words of Big Bro. Big Bro rolls up and he says, but when this son of yours, uh, he's de de denying his family sense, right? Not my brother, not my relation, not my problem. When this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Bro could not have known, right? He stayed. That's what he just said. I've always been here. He assumed. He was frustrated. He's angry. 
He's accusatory. He's not informed. He's slanderous and accusing. He's trying to make his point. It's the way he feels. So in all of Scripture, the word astos is only used once here in this parable. It's the only time it's used. So there's no other Scripture that we can go to to look at how they use that word to see how they have translated it, what the usage should be like. But the ancient Greeks use this word regularly. So here's what Aristotle says to describe it. Properly speaking, the word prodigal refers to the one who has, the, who's, who has only the sole vicious tendency to destroy his means of subsistence. That's what the word means. There's no indication of questionable or immoral behavior involved. Unwise, sure. So then why is it a generally held belief? The truth is that the, the, the church... We, the church, have tended to quote the other older brother throughout history. We kind of agree with him. We kind of like that position. So here's a great big important part of teaching from a parable. You, you have heard the parable. Now you need to ask yourself, why did Jesus teach it? What character are you supposed to be in the story? Right? Are you the younger son? Are you the older son? Are you the father? Who does this story feature? Who do you resonate? Who feels like the most like you? Who do you want to be in this story? Now, knowing what you know about Jesus and his teachings and whom he regularly taught, what message was he conveying? Take into consideration how Luke was formatting or or grouping these stories together in Luke chapter 15. It's one, two, three. What's the similarity between the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son? What are we supposed to see? Lost being found. The younger brother is listless and the older brother's lostness. Which brother are you? Which brother do you behave like, think like, I like what Amy G. Levine uh, says about this parable. She sees the three parables in Luke 15 as being about counting rather than repentance. The father has lost both of his sons and needs to look for them. Maybe the younger son did do the sex, drugs, rock, roll, and prostitutes, and maybe he didn't. That's not the point of the story. That is just a description of his lostness. That's how he got off the path. The point is that he was off the path. The problem is that the older son assumed he did those things without any way of knowing what really happened. He wants to make himself look better, feel better, just like sometimes we church folks do. The point of the story is the lost being found and the joy experienced in the finding. The unrelenting, the unbelievable love of the Father. The lost has great intrinsic value, not diminished by the circumstances of the lostness. We too often get hung up on and distracted by what we might you know, right, right, rightfully call bad behavior. 
sinful behavior, immoral behavior. Sometimes we can't see past it. We can't see around it. And it's so easy to point out. It's so easy to see bad behavior in others. Preachers have long loved to thunder away against outwardly bad behaviors, finger-wagging behaviors. The Pharisees loved to thunder away against outwardly bad behaviors. They were better rule followers than anyone. And yes, yes, there are outwardly bad behaviors. They are bad. And yes, they are damaging They damage individuals, and they can damage the community as a whole. That is true. It is serious. It is very important. But the earnest pursuit of Jesus is not about somehow pushing down, hiding away the behaviors that others might see. The earnest pursuit of Jesus is about allowing the Holy Spirit to transform our whole selves, our wholeness, by the renewing of our minds. Repenting, as in turning away, not just repenting and turning away from sins, but repenting and turning away from a belief that we will be happier and more fulfilled by pursuing whatever it is that we want in that moment. We repent and turn away from believing that we might find life and freedom apart from Jesus. We repent and turn away from placing our trust in anything or on anyone other than Jesus. Repent and be baptized. Turn away from your unbelief, then declare your belief, your faith, your trust in Jesus. We turn away from those things, but more importantly, we turn towards Jesus. We place our full weight on Him, Jesus first, everything else after. It is about being found. The lost being found and restored, restored in right relationship with God, our loving, forgiving, grace-filled, holy, heavenly Father. (coughs) We are transformed by love into loving people. And the idea of lostness continues in Luke chapter 16, okay? There we find another parable from Jesus, another story (coughs) that is designed to teach, another story that should not be stretched to fully explain everything that it touches on. It has a point. This parable forms, uh, follows a form. It's a style that was common in the teaching of rabbis. Jesus picks up that form and he refashions it for his purpose. Luke chapter 16, starting at verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. 20. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores. 21. And longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. 22. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. 23. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. 24. So he called, Father Abraham, have pity on me. 
Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. 25, but Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. And now he is comforted here and you are in agony. 26, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. 27, he answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. 28, for I have five brothers. Let, let, let him warm them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. 29, Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. 30, no, no Father Abraham, uh, he said. But, but, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. 31, he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Rich man who's not ever given a name, right? Not given an identity. No notoriety. His wealth doesn't matter at all. The rich man wants to send Lazarus, who's given an identity, given a name. The rich man wants to wave his hand and send Lazarus to his five lost brothers, which would be the Pharisees. But in Jesus' parable, Abraham says that the brothers have the law and the prophets and that they are enough. According to Jesus, when the law and the prophets are read correctly, without being screened out through the lens of self-interest, the message adds up to love. Love of God demonstrated by love of neighbor. The rich man argues, this is not enough. But if someone were raised from the dead, his brothers would be convinced. And Jesus says, it's not the case. That's not what will happen. In Luke 15, Jesus gives the Pharisees the parable of the prodigal son. Did the return of the prodigal son who was dead and has come to life convert the older brother, the Pharisees? No. In the final scene, the older brother is outside the father's house, gnashing his teeth in resentment and rage. The father has not exiled his son to the outer darkness. Rather, in his refusal to forgive, the embittered brother has exiled himself. If the Pharisees can't be convinced to the way of love by listening to the law and the prophets and by witnessing uh, sinners coming to new life through the ministry of Jesus, well, then they won't be convinced even when a crucified Messiah is raised from the dead on the third day. We might even say that hell is the love of God wrongly received. 
Hell is not God's hatred of sinners. God has a single disposition towards sinners. That is love. We are all sinners. God's love is for all. He loved the world so much that He sent His Son to die, to make a way so that even the vilest of sinners who truly believes at that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. God is always the loving Father of both the prodigal, wandering away younger son and the prodigal, resentful, older son who denies the joy. He wastes all that he has been given through comparison and self-righteous living. The what about me thinking. (coughs) The father always loves them both. Hell is not God's hatred. Rather, hell has something to do with refusing to receive and be transformed by the love of God. God has a single disposition towards sinners, that of unconditional, unwavering love. From the heart of God there flows an eternal river of fire and the fire of unquenchable love. The question is not whether God loves us, but how we respond to God's love. To those who respond to God's love with love, because we love because He first loved us, that river of fire is a source of of, of warmth and light and love. But to those who refuse to love, the same river of fire produces torment. What I'm convinced of is this. No one who calls upon the mercy of God is ever refused. I don't know how it all works, okay? I'll be honest with you. I don't know the mechanics. But I don't need to know all the mechanics because I know my God. I know my Heavenly Father. And I know what He is like. He is like the Son. Jesus is the perfect image of the Heavenly Father. He handles the mechanics, whether I understand it or not. And when we see and begin to understand God clearly, we will see that the mystery of God is paradox. God's nearness, God's imminence gives us comfort as we acknowledge that He is with us in our trouble, in our strife. In one hand, we appreciate the Lord's nearness, while the other hand, we need to appreciate His transcendence. God's unrivaled power and omniscience, the destruction of the wicked and His terrifying holiness. When facing great trouble, we need to recognize these two seemingly contradictory aspects of God's nature. He is both imminent, a hand of comfort to the afflicted, (coughs) and transcendent, a hand of strength to rescue the oppressed and to judge their oppressors. There is hope in that two-handed paradox. Rembrandt captured this paradox in his mega-famous painting, The Return of the Prodigal Son. Take a look at it here. I've uh, painted it for you uh, so you can take a look at it. Hard to see in here. Go home and, and study it. This thing is worth taking a look at. It is a fantastic painting to study upon, uh, to gaze at, to, to, to spend some time just kind of lingering there. 
he's done such a good job of thinking it through. So many insightful uh, mysteries in that. And I wanted to once again uh, welcome those of you who are interested to join the uh, Pastor Graham Clinton Book Club. Uh, here is a very helpful book. It's written by Henri Nouwen or Henry Nouwen. Uh, it's also titled The Return of the Prodigal Son. It is just a great read, not a long read. So good. An applied theological study in art. Uh, It's a unique path for many of us to walk along. I strongly encourage you, if if you've got some time, read it. It's very helpful, very good, and easy to read, but challenging to the reader at the same time. Back to the painting. Uh, The father's two hands, if you can see them, they appear very different as they embrace his returning son. And many have noted that the hands appear as if they do not belong to the same person. His left hand is rugged, strong, and defined. His right hand is slender, delicate, soft. The question is asked, was this Rembrandt's way of depicting both God's imminence and His transcendence, His tenderness and His terror? Perhaps. But the most important thing to notice is that while one of the father's hands comforts and the other confronts, both of his hands embrace his child. Both are actively involved in showing love. Because of our personality or Christian tradition or formative experiences, we have a tendency to emphasize one side of God's nature and de-emphasize the other. We all kind of do it. For some, it's easy to accept God as compassionate, caring, uh, that, that presence that's with you, comforting you, but they can downplay or ignore His justice. For others, God is primarily an avenger of wrongs who opposes all evil and so they can fail to recognize His tenderness, patience, grace. To know God is to embrace both sides, both hands of this divine paradox. Even as these two hands of God's love embrace us. In the Gospel of Luke, the prodigal son doesn't return home because of a renewed love for his father. He comes back home simply to survive because he ran out of money and is starving. He heads home selfishly for how it will benefit him. And his father is perfectly fine with that. The message is the same for you. Just come home. God just wants you home. There are all kinds of things that we use to hold us back from coming home, saying that God will be upset with us. He just wants you to come home. We'll deal with everything else after that. But the dealing with it comes after the recognition for you of your sonship, your daughtership. You are child of God. Come home. We'll sort the rest out as we go. 
in earnest pursuit of Christ. Kind Father, I thank you for the power of stories. I so appreciate the way they get into my mind and in flight, they become bigger than just the words. I see faces and expressions and hand movements and for Jesus to give us this picture of you, I am so grateful for it. And I confess at different times in my life I have emphasized different parts. Usually when I'm painfully aware of my sin, I only sense your holiness. I sense what I believe to be your discomfort with me. I have a feeling that many of my friends have been in that boat or, or are in that boat right now feeling, don't measure up. I could do better. I should do better. And until I do better, I don't want to be in His presence. Too many people joke about coming into the house of God, a church, and being struck down by lightning because of this belief. You want us to come home. We'll figure out the rest once you're home. We'll get you a change of clothes when you're home. I'll remind you of your child status before me, your, your heir status. You get home, we'll put the ring on your finger. I'll remind you of those things when you come home. And when you come home, there's going to be a celebration. And we're not going to focus on what it is that made you lost. We're going to focus on the fact that you've been found. Thank you for waiting for me repeatedly. Thank you for waiting for my friends that are listening and watching with me now. All the times that we wander away, either by going down the road to a, a, far, a country far or staying nearby and holding ourselves back from the joy that you show us that you have, evaluating others and finding them to not measure up in whatever way that we get lost. Thank you for waiting to find us. Taking the step. You taking the first step. Not demanding that we take the first step, but you come for us. Oh God, thank you so much for your earnest pursuit of us. Even as we say that we are in earnest pursuit of you, you come for us. Your arms in an embrace, just waiting for us to come home. God, may this give us power to live the life that we have to live every day. But give us a delight in our heart that, that, that makes it a story that we can tell so that we don't focus on somebody else's lostness. We focus on the possibility of them being found and the delight that will be in being found and restored. Don't leave us alone this week. Please be close. Help us to move towards you as you were standing there waiting for us.
Thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.